Paulo. Is this Paula? Paula Nino? This is she. From Entre Dos Podcast on All Points West. Yes. Who's this? <laughs> As if you don't have video right in front of you. Uh, okay, so you ready to do this? I'm ready. Okay. Let's do it. Tell the people what they need to hear. Well, June is going to be huge for All Points West. We're starting the month off with the launch of House on Fire, a podcast hosted by youth climate activists JP Mejia and Gabriela Rodriguez, and presented in partnership with the Clio Institute and Unicorn Fire Radio. We're talking climate change with top experts like Carolyn Lewis, John Morales, and Jamie Margolin. The feed is live, and the first four episodes drop on June 5th, so subscribe today. And then, on Awesome Movie Year, Jason and Josh are digging into the year 1996, including Independence Day, Bottle Rocket, and The Island of Dr. Moreau. So be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. And tell us what's going on over on uh, Entre Dos, Paula. Well, on Entre Dos, Monica and I are diving deep into the world of language rights and how we, as parents, can advocate for better dual language programs in our communities. See, I told you to be quick and painless. <laughs> I'm Q, this is Bird Road. I'm solo today, Jewish Dave is off, but we will have another episode coming out later this week, uh, catching up on all the news, and yeah, there's been lots of news. Today we've got a show um, where we're gonna kinda get into a, a different topic, something that people haven't necessarily been talking about as much. Today, uh, our guests are a pair of young people I've had the pleasure of meeting and, and working with during the course of this past year. Um, JP Mejia is a climate activist who is, I think, just graduating from high school uh, as we speak here in uh, in Miami. And uh, Gabriela Rodriguez is a uh, another climate activist who is based here in Miami. She's a student at FIU. Together, they're hosting the latest All Points West Network show, House on Fire, which is being produced by the Clio Institute. Um, the show is a youth-led podcast about the climate crisis here in Miami, where JP and Gabby hold impactful intersectional conversations with scientists, activists, artists, and more. The first four episodes are gonna drop on Friday. You're hearing this probably Wednesday, maybe Thursday. So you can go subscribe right now. Take a second, pause the podcast if you need to, uh, go to your favorite podcast player and subscribe. You can also visit allpointswest.net where we're gonna feature the show up at the top. Uh, we'll have links there where you can subscribe. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention for you to check out cleoinstitute.org where you can learn a lot more about uh, that organization's mission. Uh, JP, Gabby, welcome to Bird Road. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. So we've done this before, right? I mean, I've interviewed guys, you guys before, but it was like sort of very informal with uh, with like your introductory podcast training, um, I think at the beginning of the year. Right, yeah, that was, that was a while ago. It seems <laughs> like a while ago. It feels like years ago, right? <laughs> Um, so I want to get to the show, but uh, I want to get to the show as in the house on fire uh, and talk about that a little bit. But I also want to address some of the um, world events that have been going on. Yes, you guys are activists. You're very involved locally. Yesterday was probably the most calm night of civil unrest and protests since protests began. And you guys, like I say, are both activists. And while the climate hasn't really been at the forefront of everything for the past week, there's been this generational divide between people who have sort of broadly had enough of the system and the way things are. And I think that there are some parallels there with uh, specifically the topics that you guys deal with. I, I was just curious, how have you been, what have you been doing to get involved? What have you been doing the last few days? Has has that 
been part of your um you know your the direct action you guys have been taking uh i'm curious to hear gabby how about you yeah so uh first off thank you for bringing light to that because what's going on in the last week is scary but also very um inspiring in some ways so i'm glad that we can address that you know i personally am used to going to actions for climate and meetings commissioner stuff like that for climate but due to the pandemic we've had to stay home. And due to my own personal relationships with people who are immunocompromised, I did not participate in the protests for George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. But there are so many ways to stand in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, for me personally, a lot of it has been on top of social media, uh, having conversations with friends and family, and most importantly, be due to the color of my skin, just re unlearning a lot of what I was raised with and learning what's really true about the systems we're living in. Um, you know, I, when it comes back to climate as well, there is no climate justice without racial injustice. And I think that the what we're seeing right now just proves how important it is to involve intersectionality into what we do in our climate work. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. And, you know, I saw something that um, I'm going to drop a link in the, in the notes to as you talk about ways to be involved if you can't get out as much because of your relationship with people or maybe your own conditions. I saw for folks who, you know, have been wanting to donate to you know, the bail funds and things like that, even if you don't have money to donate on the bail funds, there's a link I'm going to drop it in the description of this episode where you can just put your browser on YouTube and watch ads and you get credit for watching the ads and you can just turn them down and minimize them or whatever, but you'll get credit and you can donate that directly to the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, to the, uh, to the bill, to the, to the bail projects. Um, JP, how about you? Yeah, I, um, fortunately enough, I, I don't have, um, people in my household who are immunocompromised or might pose a serious threat if I do interact. So I was actually able to go out and join these protests and standing in solidarity as um, a Latinx organizer of color, um, I think it's very important for us across all movements right now to address that racial injustice is at the forefront and at the epicenter of so much of what we're fighting for. If we all if we all considered that all of our lives were equal, there would be no climate crisis. The systems that we have in place right now from capitalism and relative um, exploitative systems like colonialism that have created the climate crisis have race at their epicenter. So in standing up for climate, you're also standing up for the communities who are most detrimentally, most severely, and most recently impacted by the crisis, which are black and brown communities. So as climate organizers, yes, it is our job to elevate the message that Black lives matter, and that is part of our movement as well. And that's why we stood in solidarity with them. And I was very, very empowered, scared, um, and felt all sorts of emotions as I stood taking a highway with thousands of other people uh, demanding justice for George Floyd and Tony McDade and countless others. It's funny you bring that up because um, recently, I would say back in November, I was at a... Uh, uh, an event that was put on by the state of Florida and it was over at the uh, MDC campus. And it was just a town hall, like an open call for people who they call, you know, it's typical government speak. They call everybody stakeholders. So stakeholders to, uh, you know, who, who will be impacted by climate change in South Florida. I, I showed up, I mean, I'm a stakeholder. Everybody else is, if you're hearing the sound of this voice of my voice, you probably are. And 
there were two sets of people there, right? One set, and they were all they were all well-meaning, and they all had like really good ideas, and they had great things to say. But one was, I would just say, put them in like the science bucket, where they were more marine biologists and um, you know meteorologists and people who's you know environmentalists and people who who have like a science background and are more sort of thinking technically about the problem and how to attack it. You know, uh, maybe nibble around the edges and also do some really big you know um, transformative changes to in the, in the realm of mitigation and then there were people on the social side right so there's the science and then there's the social and there's people that were more from you know i, I can spot my own there are people from like the, the, the realms of activism and the people the, the realms of protest and like dsa people and stuff like that that were there and they were more about you know kind of bringing forward the idea of like hey there's people at the core of this question there's people that are being impacted and hurt it and hurt um so it, it's funny you bring that up because that, that brought my mind back to that I think it's a challenge to sort of right now in this moment. And I think that race uh, and racial injustice is probably hopefully unlike in 2014, where it was with us for a little while and then went away for a lot of, a lot of people. Hopefully it's an issue that's going to be centered for a long time um, and have some staying power. But you know, you guys are climate activists, Gabby, how do you, when you're talking to people, try to center that climate conversation uh, or how to bring up that com- climate conversation while, you know, somebody's immediate material uh, issues are at the forefront right now. And that's kind of what, we, what we're censoring in this broader, you know, protest that's happening across the country. H- how, do you, how do you ride the rails there? If you mean how do you bring the climate crisis to the forefront of someone's mind that what people really value is their health, their financial stability, the safety of their family and whatnot, it's difficult to become riled up about the climate crisis when it seems so far away and so existential. Unlike with what we're seeing now in the world where this man, it was a racial murder and it, it was a, it's a crisis that we're living in and it's obvious and we can see it, it's tangible. With climate, it's a little bit different, which is why I think what you brought up is hits the point. There is a social side and there's a science side. And what I've learned is that talking about the science and giving data and scary facts is definitely not as impactful in approaching that conversation rather than storytelling and talking about what is at risk, what you value. Here in Miami, um, I I usually have conversations about this stuff with people who live in Miami. So something that can be brought up is really the fact that not as sea level rise will threaten your home, but there are more immediate threats. Saltwater intrusion will threaten your drinking water sooner. Extreme heat is also something people aren't talking about enough. And at the end of the day in Miami, the majority of the people who live here are not going to be able to leave. They're not of higher income and they can just deal with this crisis very easily. So it's really effective to, ha- to have that conversation here in, and c- center it around what people care about, you know, their, their health, their financial stability, wh- wh- what's the future of their family going to be like. And so that's definitely what I've learned lately to and how to bring up the climate crisis and storytelling is a very important tool. Yeah, JP, when you're not in that, um, uh, you know, in that in that circumstance or in that immediate situation of being shoulder to shoulder with people in the street, when you're just talking to people, like how, how, how do you broach that subject? Yeah, much like what Gabby said, I think that throughout all societies, most humans uh, focus their political opinions and their societal opinions on the preservation of well-being. And that's that's a very clear case now. Um, 
black folks and uh, POC and white allies are literally seeing the, t- the deterioration of their well-being through someone else, which was brutally murdered. How do we convey that and not taking away any gr- like any gravity from that situation when we talk about the climate crisis? Yeah, like Gabby said, it's really important to talk about storytelling. So lots of mistakes within the climate movement and the environmental movement of the past is that they have been largely... Uh, middle class and white and it has been talking about co2 graphs and polar bears for way too long people don't react to the preservation of their own well-being by measuring graphs and polar bears like gabby said they talk about being able to like feed their kids being able to have a steady job being able to be alive and those are very real things that the climate crisis will affect so in communicating those intersectionalities of health well-being race, freedom, when it comes to the climate crisis, that is what bridges the gap between thinking that this is a very privileged movement that can wait as to one that is very urgent and is affecting us all, but some more than others at the moment. Yeah, no, I just, I need so that I think another piece that is effective in having this conversation goes back to what JC was getting at, where the climate crisis is a culmination of what we've been doing wrong for not decades, centuries. And when you can reframe the climate crisis in a way that shows people that it is not the individual's fault, it is the fault of people at the top who are releasing the majority of the greenhouse gas emissions that are heating up our planet, that really resonates with people and makes people believe, okay, something is wrong with our system. And if we can get up collectively, it's not, we shouldn't be pitting ourselves against each other about our carbon footprints and things like that. It needs to be about collective action and understanding that there is a system that that can be changed here. Well, it, I mean, it, it did birth one of the funnier meme uh, ideas, which was the, you know, let, let me say it this way. I might have told the two of you back when we were first working together that I my, my day job is in corporate communications. And when coronavirus hit, one of the first things that um, one of the clients asked was, oh, can we do a, a, a fun internal story about how the climate is getting better without people around? And it, it, part of me wanted to try to explain to them, like, the toxicity of that. Like, okay, well, that's not a great point to make. Um, that must have infuriated you guys when that, when, when that, I, I think that was going around for about a month or so, the meme of, like, you know, the, the, the world is returning or something like that. Nature um, healing. Yeah, exactly. J- JP, uh, how did you ingest that? So that is, I'm actually really glad that you bring that up because that is a very very serious messaging and and yeah it's a very serious messaging issue within the movement and people who are actually in the movement don't don't believe in that and the danger behind that um is that in contrast to the last point which i mentioned which is how humans evaluate their opinions on their well-being that is the complete opposite you know it's talking about the well-being of the environment without the factor of coexistence of people in it and it's talking about the worsening conditions that humans must face in order to bring back the environment and that in and of itself is like a modern school of thought that's been like um referenced throughout ages which is called eco-fascism and it is very bad because it prioritizes some lives over others or just deteriorates the concept of life completely 
So right. it's very harmful messaging. Uh, yeah, it's rooted in stuff like 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 Malthusian, you know, population control, and you're only a couple steps away from some really dark, messed up stuff when you start talking about that stuff. Exactly, it turns yeah. into really, really, really bad, like not dire philosophy. Yeah, and not only is it dark and messed up, but it doesn't get to the root of the problem. If we're being yeah. pragmatic, it doesn't. You know, we are not the root of the problem. The everyday person is living in the systems they live in. You know, if somebody just happened to be born in a high carbon society. And that is what they live with. That is what they live with. It's because of the way that our economic and social systems work. So not only is it dark and dangerous and, and ugly to even think about population control based on what you, how you live your life, but it's just not even the right solution that we should All be right. advocating for. A lot of this stuff, uh, to, to your point, um, Gabby, when you trace it, it's corporate actors that are you know happening at a larger scale than any individual or even like any city full of individuals could uh uh, affect change you know w w compared to that compared to that macro those macro questions that we're facing it's yeah it's annoying to see that even though it was kind of a funny meme when there were like unicorns dancing in the streets of las vegas that were empty i thought i like that part um <laughs> so i want to get to the show what again this name of the show is house on fire uh what made the two of you First of all, I want to know about your history, how you got into this struggle, and then what made you um, decide to work with Clio Institute on putting together this show? So I study environmental science at FIU. I will be graduating next year. And I pretty much always knew that I wanted to work in the environment. A lot of the time, most of the time growing up, that was just focused on sustainability and how can you make your own lifestyle greener and how can you just reground yourself to the planet? And I love that stuff. But once I started learning about the climate emergency almost two years ago and, and really how severe it was last year and really waking up to the crisis, I realized that this is really what we need to be focusing on. Um, we need to be focusing on tackling the people up at the top 1% making these decisions and releasing massive amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. I come from a place of science and a place of science education, and that's what I love. So I decided that interning at the Clio Institute would be an awesome move for me. And so I did. And um, for the last year, I've been working on bringing climate change education into Miami-Dade public schools. And in the midst of working on those things, I was approached by our producer to, about the idea of this podcast. And, you know, she asked me, do you think it would be cool to have a youth-led podcast about climate change? And I was like yes that would be awesome and so we literally just spent a lunch break uh brainstorming it this was back in last fall and i remember working on it and thinking and just saying out loud to her we should call this house on fire like that could be a really cool name and so from there we reached out to jp and, and that's how it came to be jp i want to get your answer to that question too but really quick gabby as a follow-up um the uh the, the fact that you work with young people on this topic i'm curious are young people, and JP, you can answer, answer this too, are young people becoming more aware of this issue specifically in Miami? Is Miami like a, you know, pardon the bad phraseology, but is it going to become a hotbed for climate awareness? I mean, do you see something like that happening? So I can speak for the college age level because that's more so my group, but I also do work with high school students. I can say for the college age level, yes, you know, this is Living in Miami, we live with the impacts of climate and we're already seeing it. It's undeniable. Um, so the answer is yes. And then in terms of the students I work with, I would say the same as well. But despite that, climate change education is severely needed, um, not just in schools, but all around the community. 
I guess my background in activism really starts when I was a kid. Um, I was always really close to the environment uh, because of my grandparents who lived in Colombia. Um, and I was also a big uh, like science geek when I was when I was a kid. Like I loved like my plan was literally to go off to college and study environmental chemistry. That was in the books for me. And once I started learning more and more and more, like I came pretty well versed with the climate crisis as, as a topic of interest, but I never understood the political machinery that went against it and like the overarching themes of justice that went into it as well. That all changed in my sophomore year when Miami was hit by Hurricane Irma. Um, everything looked pre-apocalyptic when this hurricane was coming. People were bunkered down, it was insane. And luckily enough, the hurricane changed its trajectory and barely brushed over Miami Nevertheless, it had its damage. So what my mom and I had done is that we stayed with a more affluent family friend to reduce the risk that anything would happen. And once the hurricane had passed by, I was going back home and I realized that, oh wow, like I stayed with a like person who has more money to be safer. Now that I'm coming back home, I realized that all of the people who are really losing lives and losing homes and losing money because of this crisis that's been created by rich people are black and brown, low income people. And I first understood what climate justice was because of that. A year later, this thing called the IPCC report, which is this a bunch of international scientists that put forth this report on climate change, said that we have 12, we had 12 years to cut our emissions in half in order to have a chance at a livable future that wasn't catastrophic and out of our reach to shift. And I just kind of looked around at that point and I was like, where are the adults? Where are the leaders here? Like, what is going on? People are dying. And that's when Greta's movement was starting to pick up in um, Europe. And I decided to do a school walkout here. So I did a school walkout, it went well, and a bunch of people reached out to me. And one of the people that reached out to me was actually the Clio Institute. And I started organizing with them as part of their Gen Clio program, their youth program. And much like Gabby, one day I just received a text message from one of the staffers at Clio, our producer, Mia. And she was like, hey, I got to tell you an idea. Can I pick you up from school today? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. So she took me to the studio and we spoke about everything having to do with the podcast. And well, it's a while later and here we are launching finally. So yeah, the launch is on Friday again, everybody. If you are hearing this, uh, anytime you can go subscribe to the show and uh, the first four episodes are gonna drop on Friday. You were both already pretty knowledgeable about this threat and this crisis, but what is in the, with the folks that you've talked to already in these first four episodes and a few more that we're getting in the can, uh, getting ready to, to produce, what's something that you'd learned while reporting and interviewing on this show that you maybe didn't already know? That's a really good question. I would say that for me to find the answer to that question, I need to think back to the conversations that were where I just thought to myself, wow, I don't even know how to really, like I needed a second to ingest what they were saying and then move forward. And I think those were actually with Jamie Margolin, the founder of This Is Zero Hour and Isra Hersey, the co-founder of Youth Climate Strikes, because I find that a lot of knowledge is much more rooted in science and climatic impacts and you know things of that sort and living in Miami, growing up in South Florida. Um, but I'm learning more and more about what it actually is like to organize 
um, which is why I respect JC so much because he has a good understanding of that given that he does organize. And so when I spoke to Jamie and Isra, I just heard so many things about from them about what it's like to be a young person organizing for such a mature topic. And then the answers they would give us were very, were just not the answers I expected and the struggles and, and the experiences they've had and what they're doing. I think a big thing that I got out of the conversations with them is that activism is not some like flowery thing that these kids are doing for fun. This is because our, the future of our lives are at risk as being a part of the young generation. Um, they were both incredible and that's, that's what I would say. I'd say that my main takeaway from all of the conversations that we've had is about the intersectionality of climate change. I think that this most significant takeaway that I've taken away is that the climate crisis means different things. Sorry. The climate crisis means different things for different people. Um, we've had artists, we've had meteorologists, we've had activists, we've had organizers, we've had teachers, we've had moms. There is, There are reasons as to why people get involved in the fight, and that really brings forth the intersectionality and the overcompassing subject that the issue has. I say, I'd say that's my biggest takeaway. It's funny you guys you guys bring up an intersectionality a lot and you see the power of it. I mean, it's become a little bit of, of a buzzword, but if you were somebody, you know, my age and I'm I'm older than you guys, uh if you were somebody my age and you were aware of um efforts to raise a w- awareness of a- around at the time mostly called global warming, but like uh climate change and the crisis that it's turned into, that's what was missing. Was it was a small group of people trying to convince other people to care about it. It was a small group of scientists and a few activists who were trying their best, but there wasn't that that sense of solidarity, like, hey, we're in this together. We are we are sharing this problem and we need to share the future of solving it. You know, obviously I'm biased, I'm part of the production team, but uh, what I really love about it is that it's rooted in Miami and we have a metropolitan population in Miami. In South Florida, that's about 10 million. We're the seventh most populous metropolitan area in the country. We are uniquely at risk. We are, you know, inevitably parts of our of our of our uh, region are disappearing. Uh, we are perpetually dealing with this crisis, and I think it's important that there are voices coming from Miami. And I want to kind of get your thoughts on like what that means, like what it means to be sort of like a uniquely Miami show, and to be people who, like folks who are for young people who are from Miami. Um, but I kind of also want to like toss it out there that. I hear this thing a lot from fellow Miami, you know, homeowners, actually, people out here who, who own homes who are like, well, you know, uh, you know, the FIU GIS report says that my my house is six feet high, so I should be okay. And in my mind, I'm thinking like, you really think you're going to be okay when all the people around you are suffering and in like, you know, in bankruptcy or their, their finances are falling apart, their lives are falling apart. Do you really think that you're just going to be on an island okay? And... I say that to to say that like there are a lot of preconceived notions that I'm sure the two of you bump up against, especially from the older generations in Miami, about what um, the effects of of climate change are going to be. And I just want to ask you, sort of po- pose that general question. Being from Miami, there are probably some things that are easier about broaching this subject and 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 being active on this subject, and then some things that are maybe harder, like preconceived notions that you have to knock down. Well, my my first thoughts 
are that being from Miami and, and speaking to other people who are also from Miami, you inherently share a lot of the same values with that person. The, the love we have for the beaches here, the, the beauty of the beaches, the Everglades, the fact that we can drive 20 minutes and we go from urban metropolitan city to amazing cultures and different communities and natural sceneries here. Now, when it comes to the significance of the fact that our show is based in Miami, it's based at ground zero. You know, Miami is not just known as the magic city. We're also known in the climate world as ground zero because we are the most vulnerable city in the United States to the climate crisis from extreme heat to saltwater and sea level rise to intensified hurricanes, no matter what level of income you are in the city. Like you said, you, you will be affected by the climate crisis because even if you could afford to buy a house that could protect you, or if you're at a higher elevation, there are other situations of climate that people don't talk about enough, or maybe we, we don't understand enough yet. For example, like I mentioned before, saltwater intrusion. We talk a lot about sea level rise, but we don't talk about how before sea level rise comes, that water table will impact our septic, septic tanks, all the other wiring we have, our natural drinking water, water is expensive. Um, and then also an intensified hurricane. We already know that this hurricane season coming up is predicted to be stronger than the rest we've seen in the last decade. So I just don't think that being in Miami, you can, despite what privilege or level of income you have, you can't really escape this issue. It's, it's, we have to be talking about it. And the fact that the podcast is based in Miami gives that unique perspective from a group of young people who are growing up with this existential threat and learning to understand it at the age of 18 and 21. The, the significance behind living in Miami and having this be a, you know, a, a, the voice, the youth voice of Miami is exactly what Gabby said. We are ground zero. We are one of the most vulnerable communities when it comes to the climate crisis. And more than that, there are inherent privileges that even Gabby and I share in terms of the what the oncoming climate crisis that others in our community do not have. There are others in our community, which is already vulnerable, which are more vulnerable than others. Um, and I guess what the podcast seeks to do, not I guess, I, I know, and our mission in this podcast is to elevate those voices. Um, so we were just talking about, uh, you know, racial injustice. We can see that we, we have the epicenter of the intersections between climate and racial justice injustice here in Miami when it comes to climate gentrification, where we have black and brown low-income communities like Little Haiti, for example, that are being driven out by uh, corporate developers in order to uh, seek profit by investing in real estate that's above sea level. So I think that um, the notions and, and the messaging the notion, the notions and the messaging of the notions of this and the messaging of this podcast being from Miami is super important because it transmits the message of what the climate crisis can be for the majority. It, it, it's funny you you brought up the topic of climate gentrification, and I had just re revisited um, an old colleague of mine, uh, Nadesh Green, who is I think just leaving the WLRN now, but she had done a um, really interesting uh, four parts. Uh, special with WNYC about um, uh, climate gentrification in Little Haiti. And it was sobering to hear her talk about and hear her interview people who had said that their elders in their community had said for years, oh yeah, just wait, the rich people are coming for this land. 
not not during my lifetime, but in your lifetime, they're going to come for this land. And it was just a known thing. This this land is higher up, and you know, like like you said, Gabby, it's just this unrealistic sort of like capital infused solution. Like we're just going to buy our way to higher land, and everything will be fine. And it's a very Miami thing. It's like a very sort of Miami attitude to have about about it. Um, on that topic, there's two words that have come up a lot as local officials over the last 10 or 15 years have been forced to actually acknowledge, not just local, but state level and even and even um, congressional level uh, officials have, have, have had to really grapple with the reality. And they can't just deny it anymore. They can't say that it doesn't exist anymore. That's like passe. That's very 2014, pretending that it's not happening. And those two words that you hear a lot are mitigation and resiliency. And I've argued before on this podcast, and I want to hear your take on this. I've argued before that mitigation and resiliency are permission structures. They're ways for local officials and people who are elected to make sure that they don't scare the tax base, that people don't run, and people don't do, uh, in some cases, the work that actually needs to get done to address the core problems. What do you two think of when you hear those words, mitigation, resiliency? There's new offices, statewide offices of, of uh, you know, resiliency and, and, and things like that. And from your, pers- from your, your work, are those bodies doing good work or is it like i say sort of more of a um, more political cover to be able to just kind of keep doing the same things and appeasing the people who are you know polluting the environment yeah i think that those two words if what was being done or if what was needed was being done those two words would transmit a wonderful message of what is needed and what is being done. Unfortunately, that's not the case. These two very vague, these two words now have become very vague in terms of what climate or environmental policy is passed, half of which isn't effective enough how we need it. So I'd like to uh, focus on the two meanings of those words. So resilience is a much broader word than mitigation. Resilience can capture, like can talk about anything like adaptation to to fortification of of our infrastructure, to sewers, to all sorts of things that we talk about when we're already dealing with the climate crisis. But this is why mitigation is so important. What mitigation means is that you're preventing the problem from happening. Essentially, you're decarbonizing, removing less less emissions, which, which is what causes this. So essentially, the way to think about these two things, let's imagine that our problem right now with climate change is like a big hole in a boat. It's going to sink. It's not going to go well if we leave this problem unaddressed. People saying that they recognize it, I recognize and I believe that there's a hole in the boat. Great. Good for you. You're still dying. Okay. You're still going to drown. That's not enough. Okay. Then here comes the guy talking about resiliency. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a bucket and we're going to start pouring this water that's coming in out of the boat and it's going to be amazing. Great. He gets a couple people clapping. He said he identified the problem, some kind of solution. Amazing. The boat's still sinking. But then here comes the other guy. He's like, all right, let's talk about mitigation. Sure, we can have some resilience and, and keep getting a bigger bucket to take the water out. But how about we just fill in the hole? That way we fill... We, we stop our problem and we can go on towards a better future where we don't drown. That is exactly what we're seeing right now. And unfortunately, there's not much mitigation going around on a local level, on a regional level, on a national level, on an international level. And that's what our work is, honestly. 
So yeah, that jargon is ineffective right now because it takes a place of false promises. Something that I would, that was perfect. Great, great metaphor. You're the best. <laughs> Something that I would add to that is that, you know, if we're going to have that mitigation, mitigation, if we're going to transition from a dirty energy system to a clean energy system, get to the root of the problem, cut out greenhouse gas emissions, it needs to be through a just transition, which is probably a word that a lot of people also hear a lot now too, that that's become a buzzword as well, a just transition, because it's true. If we're going to be taking away the jobs from, you know, fossil fuel workers and whatnot, it needs to be done in a way where we can guarantee clean, clean jobs for their families. It needs to be done in a way where frontline communities, usually black and brown communities are put at the forefront. Um, so I, you know, what JP said kind of just is the same that I thought to have about those two words, but I would also like to highlight that if we are going to push forth with decarbonizing, it needs to be done correctly. I want to shift a little bit to, I, I want to ask you guys a question about um, the Michael Moore documentary that just came out recently, uh, Planet of the Humans. I know this is in your wheelhouse, but I know it's a pretty recent release. Don't know if either of you have had the chance to see it. Uh, I'll get your thoughts on it, but but my real question is this. That documentary has gotten a lot of criticism, taken a lot of flack. And if you look at the criticism, that a lot of it is valid, um, the, the valid parts are you know borne out from like really old data. And in this in this world, in this on this topic, ten year old data might as well be a thousand years old because of the speed at which things are moving. Um, and a lot of us, like I'm forty, right, and I come from a time where, uh, you know, like Al Gore was taking powerpoints and turning them and like you know turning them into movies, and we were like, oh my god, that's crazy. But uh, we talked about a generational divide before. Um, I I, I want to pick your brains first of all get your impressions on whether or not you saw that movie because a lot of people in in this realm are talking about it right now and not not for not always for great reasons and then also kind of get your get your your input on how you guys have had to disabuse sort of older thinking people people who whose minds are maybe rooted in the climate crisis of 2010 or in the climate crisis of 2005 um to acclimate them again, bad pun, but acclimate them to, to, to like what's happening today. Uh, JP, let me start with you. So since I haven't watched the movie yet, I'll answer your second question as to what it uh, has to do with like older thinking and stuff like that. One of the problems as an organizer that I often face is sort of interacting with older people, older people who want to be part of the movement, but can't accept youth leadership. So there are lots of great, especially at the Clio Institute, we have great allies who just provide open doors for the youth to come in and grab, grab, uh, take the power and, you know, essentially advocate for what is their own future. In other cases, we have, um, in other cases, we have um, organizers who are older and perhaps feel that they are more well-versed in the topic that are like, okay, like, that's really cute that you want to get into us, but leave this to us. Yeah. And very patronizing. I say that yeah. the very strategic way as to how to deal with that is by honestly never losing the confidence in yourself that you have when it comes to issues like these but also educating and reminding older folks what allyship is and why you're just as entitled as you are seemingly inheriting an uninhabitable future to make the decisions when it comes to organizing and where the movement is going. Yeah, um, I agree completely with that. And I think on that note, 
the important part of it is that a lot of the times uh, the majority of our voter turnout are the older generations. And so having those conversations with them and extending our activism bubble outside of the youth is very important. We cannot do, we cannot achieve what we want in the time span we have without having the older generations become activists for climate justice as well, largely because they do vote and they, and other actions too, not just but other civic actions that they take. Um, now, when it comes to the Michael Moore film, I actually did see it. I saw it a few days after it was released. Part of me wishes I didn't because I added to that viewership, but the other part is glad that I did because I can speak to my opinion on it. And so overall, there was many things wrong with that film. One of the things that you mentioned was the use of old data, especially on the solar energy industry and what solar energy is now capable of very outdated data um and another point that needs to be brought up as well is that on top of that misinformation there's a bunch of misinformation spread across that film on different areas of the climate crisis as well but um, claims that certain big green groups were in bed with corporate leaders and that is a real thing that did exist that does exist but some of the claims they made were proven to be wrong there's a number of things wrong with that film. I think it's important to recognize that the film also tends to steer towards an eco-fascist mes message towards the end, which is really what um, left a bad taste for me in my mouth after watching it, you know, hinting towards population control, hinting towards the fact that we will not save this planet if we continue to be consumers, yet the film doesn't address the fact that consumer consumerism per capita on this planet is not equal. So it would not be fair to punish those in less developed countries for their act on this planet. And so, you know, overall, lots of things that I wasn't a, a fan of that film. I, I'm glad to see that there was a conversation afterwards, though, about how informed it was and how it was spreading an incorrect message. And I think at the end of the day, um, it's just important that we, you know, we talk about it, but we also close it and put it away. And that's why I'm glad that I, I'm actually not sure if the film is still accessible to watch I think it was taken down but it you know it shows to the climate movement that there are sides of the climate world that are pushing messages that I don't agree with and most people wouldn't agree with so we need to have the points ready to to talk and against those messages yeah it's it's disappointing man as somebody who grew up on like bowling for columbine I mean when I was your age I was watching bowling for columbine I was watching you know fahrenheit uh 9-11 and um to like to know that that guy, like you're right, that movie was I think removed from a lot of distribution, and just I think it was just today, Michael Moore, Michael Moore was on Twitter, just appealing to fans to just host the movie on various websites, like whatever website you own. Just here, here's the M here's the MP4 file. Just put it up on your website since we're being we're being censored, you know. And it was just really profoundly disappointing for like to be like a 40 year old leftist like me and to like see that kind of happen in front of you. But you brought up a really good point. Um, and one of the things that that movie, to transition to that point, uh, dabbles in and, and pushes is nihilism, right? Beyond just the eco-fascism, it's almost like nothing can be done. This is the way things are, and we're all fucked, right? And uh, and I, I mean, I've, sometimes I feel that way, and I try to fight it every day. I have a six-year-old kid. Everybody who listens to the show knows about Zoe, and um, so I can't feel that way, right? And you guys can't feel that way. You guys are like... You're not even 20 yet and you're only like 21. So uh, how do you guys fight against that? How do you guys try to like, especially when you're talking to other people who just, 
I imagine a lot of the rebuttals that you hear when you talk to people are like, oh, it doesn't matter anyway. You know, none of this is going to make a difference. And it's all, you know, we're all screwed. How, how do you fight that nihilism? I think that fundamentally nihilism is a very, and this might sound crazy, but it's a very easy thing to mold into militant optimism. I think that one of the great things about many nihilistic people is that yeah, there is a belief that life is meaningless and there isn't necessarily a concrete definition of what moral principles and values should be. But instead of that being provided as an inhibitory thing towards any action, I think it is almost liber uh, uh, it's an act of liberation. By not succumbing to what is by, by succumbing, actually, to the fact that things are meaningless, we have the power to create what that meaning is to us. And in doing that, we can agree that we want not only a better world for ourselves, but a better world for the people that live with us, for the people whom we love, like your daughter. And I think that in crossing that bridge from nihilism to militant optimism, historical context as to the things that we've done before, like getting out of the Great Depression, sending someone to the moon, winning World War II, are things that make what we're doing seem possible. And I think that's a great strategy of, of being able to communicate and, and revive in people a hope that has been in large part lost by the corporate mechanisms that control um, the problem that we're in right now in terms of the climate crisis. People have felt so disillusioned by their political systems, which are completely reliant on corporate power, that they feel that their opinion and their action is obsolete at this point. And we have to remind them that it isn't. And that's part of our work as well as organizers. I agree wholeheartedly. And I can say that I never had that uh, perspective of nothing matters. I do think there is meaning. I do think that there you need to put in the effort good energies out to receive a change in this planet um but i will say that i wasn't always optimistic about uh, optimistic about this frankly before i started working at the clio institute and really submerging my life around climate activism and people who work in this field i always thought the climate crisis was something that i was learning about in my college classes but i did not want to touch thought it was too scary too political too existential and i really grew a negative mindset around it where i thought and i really I'm honestly embarrassed to say this now looking back on it, but like where I thought somebody will figure that out because frankly, I was ignorant to how severe it was and I was ignorant to how the power to change it is not in the hands of some random scientists that's studying environmental science or climate science. It's in the hands of the people because this problem is so systemic. So I, you know, realized that this was something that I needed to take care of and really start becoming an activist for and encouraging others to do so. And I agree with the, the points that JP said. I think that optimism is incredibly important in driving this work. And I think there also needs to be a hint of outrage. And we're, we're seeing that in the protests that we're living with this past week, that there was outrage and a lot of outrage in political work is driven by optimism and having the thought that yes, things can change because they can. Things, that's something that needs to be said a lot more, I think, to people who may be feeling like everything is meaningless. Things can change. We've seen it in history and we actually are seeing some countries take lead. Even if it's not perfect lead, 
that things are changing. We have the energy, we have the solutions. We just need the willpower. So the show is called House on Fire. You can find it anywhere that you can find podcasts, anywhere that you're listening to this show. If it's on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, anywhere. Um, go download it, rate it, review it. New episodes are going to come up on uh, on Friday. The first four episodes are going to be out there. Um, what are we going to hear on those episodes? Give a little, uh, give yourselves a little, a little uh, plug. What, what what will people be um, hearing through the first uh, batch of episodes? So we're, you're going to be hearing a lot. You're going to be hearing in the first episode about like my climate mother and the founder of the Clio Institute, who is Caroline Lewis, great person, as well as lots of other local and national voices, such as like national organizers like Jamie Margolin and Isra Hirsi, as well as local like people in Miami, like John Morales and Alex Harris, who are leading the fight over here as well. Cool. So the hosts are my guests today. JP Mejia, Gabriela Rodriguez. Guys, thanks for coming on Bird Road. Thanks so much. An All Points West production.